Morning, everyone. It's good to um, it's good to be here on the first Sunday of 2019 together. Um, uh, thanks for being here. Um, if you're a visitor here, you're really, really welcome. Um, we hope you enjoy it and feel welcome. Um, it's been a, it's a privilege to be able to dedicate that little idea. And uh, we pray God's richest blessing on his life and on the wider family and the parents. And um, thank you for being here. Um, hopefully you can knit into the theme here. Um, it's a slightly unique time for us as a church because we're about, as Chris alluded to, to move buildings. Um, and uh, and so we're just trying to discern and understand how the Holy Spirit might be leading us at the moment. And uh, and so this message this morning is probably going to build a little bit on last week. So let me just take the first wee part of this morning to uh, uh, help just summarize a bit of what we talked about last week so that you can get an idea of where, where, where we're going this morning. Um, one of the scriptures that was really important to us when we planted the church here in Portadown um, over a year ago was that we felt that the Lord just wants to do some beautiful new things in Portadown and the surrounding areas. And as we came across to begin praying without really being sure what that might lead to, um, or where it might lead to, um, we, we, we found this verse in Genesis chapter 26, and it says that Isaac built an altar there, he called on the name of the Lord, he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. And we were just saying that we feel that um, the order of these three things were really important. He built an altar and called on the Lord. He pitched a tent and he dug a well. And we were trying to say that oftentimes we can stampede ahead of God, do our own thing, start digging in places where maybe we're not quite sure God actually wants us to dig, and that we took some time to really build an altar. And an altar represents sacrifice. It represents surrender. It represents laying down your own dreams and ambitions and things and allowing the Lord to do something in your heart that in time allows you then to establish something, pitch a tent somewhere so that the territory that the enemy has had for far too long can be taken back and occupied by the presence of God. And then we can start digging something, a well of water that becomes something that other people can find refreshing in. And uh, and so it feels like to us as we uh, approach a move again in the next few weeks that the Holy Spirit, even though you should be practicing this daily, um, if you get the picture for the sense of the corporate journey we're on, we get we feel that the Holy Spirit's calling us just to, to do that all over again, to, to build an altar, to not get too attached to our own ideas, to not get too attached to our own buildings, to not get attached to our own models, but to hold, allow the Holy Spirit to do what He wants to in our hearts, to surrender ourselves to Him. And it appears that um, as we do this, God is calling us to do things not in the most conventional way, He's calling us to do things slightly different than maybe most of us have been used to when it comes to going to church and um, uh, being secure in a building. And it doesn't necessarily feel that comfortable. But um, I think it was Albert Einstein who's um, attributed to to have said uh, that the definition of insanity is if you keep keeping doing the same things but expecting the same results. Yeah. The definition of insanity, keeping doing the same things but expecting different results. And the reality is, you know, while the church has been faithful in lots of different ways over the years, there should have been more of a breakthrough in our towns and in our cities and in our villages. We should have seen more people come to know Jesus. We should have seen more things happen that would um, uh, lift the 
lift, lift people out of poverty. We should have saw more done around reconciliation. We, we want to see new things happen, but if we keep doing the same things in the same ways, uh, expecting different results, then we kind of probably need to have a word with ourselves, which is what we feel often the Holy Spirit is leading us into. And he's bringing us, we think, um, to a place where we do things slightly differently. And we're not doing things differently to go, oh, we're different because we're great, because that wouldn't be very humble. And it's not the heart of God. We're not doing it, but it just feels that the Holy Spirit isn't allowing us to get comfortable. I would love to stay here, if I'm being honest. It feels like home now, right? But we can't. And it feels like the Holy Spirit is, is, is shifting us, is moving us. And part of the reason is that the enemy, the devil, who is an enemy, an enemy of every single one of our souls, he's here to steal and kill and destroy from the youngest to the oldest, right? He hates our lives, right? He wants us held in the grip of deceit and misunderstanding of the purposes and plans of God for our lives. And he has held sway for far too long. And so we need to I think the way the Holy Spirit is moving us is undercutting the strongholds that exist within this town and in this wider area. I think he's moving us around because of that. Because when we're in touch with the Spirit, we'll always outflank the enemy. When we're in tune with Jesus, we'll always be one step ahead of the devil. But the problem is <clears throat> sometimes we're not in tune with Jesus. And uh, we just play at church. We play religi religiosity. We just show up. And yet our hearts aren't wholehearted to, to the Lord. And, and, and what I have found is the thing that's really important to realize is the devil can't create anything. He's not the creator. God is the creator. God is the creator of the universe. He spoke and light just shot out of his mouth. God is the creative force in the world. The enemy can only distort and distract and deceive. That's what he does. That's his tactics. Um, and so what we are hungering after is the word of the Lord. That's what we want. That's why we fast. Man shall not live by bread alone, right? I know, I know God has given us food, and it's a great gift. But now and again, when God calls us to fast, we fast because we are after the word of the Lord. Because when you get the word of the Lord, you can stake your whole life, your whole future on it. We're after the word of the Lord for our kids and for our community and for this town. That's what we want to hear. We want to attune our ear to heaven this week as a people, individual, as individuals for our own lives. Right? There's things I want to hear God on. And he speaks. He comes and reveals things to us. And, uh, and so I want to encourage you to come with us on that journey this week. And so while we feel that God has somewhere for us in the short term, really or in the long term, sorry, we really sense he's somewhere for us in the short term too. And that is, um, as we said last week, we feel like we're going to gather on Sundays in the town hall. And then throughout the week, we have a presence up the street in Market Street, which Chris referred to there. And, uh, and so it's not so much about us flying our own flag or the banner of Emmanuel over a church. It's not really about that. It's about a people who are willing to steward the presence of God and to learn how to do that in a really powerful way. And alongside that last week, I just really um, wanted to stir us, as I personally have felt stirred over Christmas, around the urgency of the hour in which we live. Um, Apostle Paul talked about how we, we are the people who live at the culmination of the ages, he said. The last days were... They referred to in the Bible as the last days as 2,000 years ago. So how much more are these the last of the last days? And 
we are living at a time where this world is frightening. The way the world is changing, it's fr- nobody knows what's going to happen next. We don't really know what institutions to put our security in anymore because we can't because they're all crumbling. And they've all been exposed, many of them, for manipulation and abuse of all different forms. We see all this spilling out on their own. The world is cracking up. And, and, you know, these are signs of the urgency of the hour in which we live. Um, we, we just quoted this verse, First Peter, the message version. Everything in the world is about to be wrapped up, so take nothing for granted. Stay wide awake in prayer. And... We, we, we need to know that, that this, we know how this movie ends. Only it's not a movie, it's the real deal. We know how it ends. Jesus is coming back, the judge of the living and the dead. And every single one of us, whether we believed him or not, we're going to look him in the eye. We're going to look him straight in the eye, and he's going to look us, and he's going to love us with everything we've got, with everything he has. And when we look at him in the eye, we're going to see holes in his hands and holes in his feet. Jesus in a resurrected body like ours, only better. But we'll still see the marks of who he was and what he did for us. And, you know, we want to be able to look in his eyes and say, you know what, Jesus, I give it everything I've got. I give it everything I've got to live for you. I didn't get it all right, but I give I give you my life, and I wanted to be part of what you're doing in the world. And so I just really want to encourage us to hear what I think is the word of the Lord to us at the moment to rouse yourselves from any kind of sleepiness or apathy, to seek his face and to build another altar, and to be ready to hear what the Spirit is doing and breathing something new. And so as I continue on this morning, I feel like um, we often use the first Sunday of the month to talk about vision and to detail some of the things that we're going to do. And it's maybe a little bit more practical, but it's kind of hard for us to do that because we're going to have to see how this whole thing So what I'd like to talk about a bit more this morning is not so much all that we're going to do, although we'll reference some of that stuff next week. What I would love to talk about is the posture that I think we need to adopt as we go forward into 2019. Um, So hopefully you can come with me on the journey here this morning. Um, Last week I referenced Abraham and Isaac's practice of, of building an altar. They there were people that understood what, despite all their weaknesses, they understood what God really wanted to do and the kind of relationship God really wanted to have with them. And uh, they surrendered their hearts and their lives, even the promises of God, like Isaac, they surrendered them on altars because they knew that what God desired was a depth of intimacy and relationship that beyond what they could ever imagine. God wasn't looking some tokenistic kind of, you know, prayer. He was looking at depth of relationship. And so we seem, it seems that this theme of altar then continues right through the Bible. Um, the people that said yes to Jesus in wholehearted surrender became like the receptacles that became the people that contained and carried the purposes of God in their generation. It's unbelievable to think that the purposes and plans of God were carried by human beings in their generation. And another one of these characters we're going to talk about this morning was David. And uh, David had a posture towards the Lord. He is referred to in the Bible as one who was after God's own heart. Beautiful um, thing to have on your gravestone, wouldn't it be? 
uh, to be someone after God's own heart. And he had learned how to follow God's purposes. He had learned how to build altars despite all his imperfections. And he had to learn, like we did, how to steward the presence of God. Um, oh, let me come to that in a minute. He, he uh, prayed prayers like, um, give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. So I want us to learn something about David this morning. But before I do that, I need to just knit the story together. Okay, so sorry, this is a wee bit like Sunday school kind of Bible story here. But hopefully you'll, you'll come with me because it's just really important where we're going this morning. Is that all right? Everyone with me? Brilliant. Okay. Sound, sound, sound like you are, right? Abraham, let me knit the story together between Abraham and David, okay? Between Abraham and David, like quite a bit, okay, in the Bible. We've got most of, yeah, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, right? Um, but let me summarize that in about no more than five minutes, okay? Um, the main probably story we could argue is the story of Moses, who are the descendants of Abraham, hundreds of years later, 400 years later, and they find themselves in Egypt. And God delivers Moses and these Hebrew slaves who become the children of Israel. They, they are delivered from the evil oppression and slavery of Egypt. And um, they're brought into the wilderness, and God wants to choose them to be a people that will showcase his purposes to the whole world. That's always been God's intention, that he could get a people who would be one with him, who would be his chosen people, and that through them, they would shine a light so that all the world could come to know the goodness of God. And, uh, and so God brings them into the wilderness. He starts to tell them that he wants them to be his chosen people. He starts to show them how he wants them to live a life of holiness, and he gives them the Ten Commandments and all of that kind of thing. And then he says, I want to come and dwell amongst my people. I want to actually live amongst them. And the way he wants to live amongst them is in this big tent, basically, which is called the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, we see an echo of the Garden of Eden. Because if you're a Bible nerd like me and read all the intricacies of what, how the tabernacle was designed, beautiful, beautiful artistry, it was all symbolic of a, like a mini version of the world. It was all symbolic, you could say, of like a portable Garden of Eden. And so God was saying to his people, this is what I've always wanted. And God doesn't say, here, by the way, I'm going to stay up in heaven. I'll see how you are getting down, on down there. And every now and again, I'll shout down and go, um, I love you. I hope you're getting on rightly. God doesn't do that. What God says is, I want to dwell in the midst of my people. I want to come down and be amongst you. And the particular form God used, which is probably culturally, you can kind of understand it when people were wanderers and they moved around in kind of tents or some kind of shacks, God built a really big tabernacle. Looks something like that. Bit weird, you know, for us in the 21st century, but there and then and that day, probably very, very relevant. And there was all different kind of furnitures. There was altars and this thing called a lever and da-da-da-da-da-da, Right? But in the very um, far end, where that little number one is, um, right in the far end of the tabernacle, there was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, right? And the Ark of the Covenant looks something like this. Again, to those of us uh, who are kind of driven by 21st century sensibilities, it's like, what on earth is that, right? But in those days, again, um, where people worshipped all kind of, kind of gods, this would have been like, not this would have been different, but they would probably have started to get it a little bit. And let me just try and explain for those of you who don't know. The Ark of the Covenant was like the hotspot 
of God's presence in the world. Do you ever go for a swim and it's like Baltic? And then you're like, oh, I found a wee hot spot. Yeah? And you're like in the, in the middle. Hopefully it's, hopefully it's not because you paid or anything like that, right? right? But you find, like a wee, you find like a wee hot spot and you're like, well, when it comes to the, when it comes to the presence of God, and when it comes to coming into the tabernacle, people would have came with worship and they started to prepare their hearts and they went through the, the first parts of the, the, of the tabernacle, as I showed you. And then there was this place, and this was behind a curtain. Okay? And behind a curtain, and this was in where this Ark of the Covenant was, it was called the Holy of Holies. Now, when you read the Bible, it's intense. Like It's, it's almost hard to get your head around. One priest went in there only once a year, on behalf of all the people. And if you read the Bible, it tells us that he had a little kind of thing like um, around his ankle. Sorry, I fell over there. Not as young as what he used to be. right? He had a little thing around his ankle with like bells on it. And when he went in to uh, call on God on behalf of the people to receive forgiveness of God, and he went in behind the tent, he was the only one that was allowed to go in once a year. <laughs> if the bell stopped ringing then they'd know he was dead, right? But if the bells kept ringing, they thought, right, we've still got a chance. And once he comes back out again, we'll understand that God's presence is for us. He has forgiven us our sins, and we are his people. And uh, there was two cherubim on it, and the idea was that two big angels, basically, that God's presence would come and rest between the cherubim and and so there was this kind of holy awe and fear, like holy fear, not like fear as in a bad kind of negative feeling of freed, but a holy awe and reverence of the presence of God. It represented, on one hand, it was like a bit of a tension. On one hand, it represented we would still have been slaves if it hadn't been for God and his presence. So therefore, this is kind of like our lifeline. Because this is the thing that reminds us, because actually inside it were the Ten Commandments and rose, um, iron's rod and things like that, things that represented the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, from slavery. And so in one way it represented, this is our lifeline. If anything ever happens, this, we are gone. All the other nations will just come and ransack us and we'd be dead. But in another way, this kind of also represented a holy, we better not muck about with this. This is, this is the presence of Almighty God who created the heavens and the earth. Um, and so it was, it was pretty intense. <laughs> but this became the key object that represented the presence of God with his people. It was everything for the children of Israel. And their lives were ordered about it, all around it. And the other thing that's important to remember is that um, the tabernacle was portable. Okay? Okay. Um, God didn't want the children of Israel to stay in the wilderness. Getting out of slavery is great, but he's teaching them something in the wilderness because he's somewhere for them to go, which is the promised land. That's the biblical theme of inheritance. And that's the same for us. So for for those of us who have maybe prayed a prayer, got saved, and come out of slavery, but we're still wandering around the wilderness, today, maybe the message to you is, Listen, there's more for us. God has great plans for us, purposes for us, beyond what we can imagine. That's the promised land. That's where he wants to take us. And so God was like moving them around the wilderness by a fire by night and a cloud by day. And so the children of Israel, referenced this last week, would have been in their little tents doing their 
day-to-day business or whatever, and then they'd have seen the cloud move, and they would be like, right, up sticks, pack up the tent, move to wherever God is moving us, and there was a particular tribe of Israel called the Levites, and their job was to move all the furniture of the tabernacle, okay? So as you can see, it's got like poles running through it there, and they would have carried that on their shoulders, right, wherever God was leading them next as a people. Can you imagine? Probably somewhere between one and two million people en masse, moving, (laughs) carrying all of their belongings, but most importantly, carrying the tabernacle, this kind of mobile tent. Be great for a big, like, festival somewhere, wouldn't it? In a a field somewhere. And so, throughout the rest of the the story, we we, we hear the, the, the Ark of the Covenant pops up now and again, and we understand how how, how much of a priority it was for the children of Israel. So, for example, if you read about Joshua, who's Moses' successor, taking the children of Israel across the Red Sea now into the Promised Land, you'll read that the thing that went first was the Ark of the Covenant. The priests went into the water, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and the waters stacked up, and the people walked across. You'll read that when the children of Israel walk around Jericho's walls all these times, what did they bring with them? The Ark of the Covenant. We get it, and we see it loads and loads. And it's a fascination. Who's old enough to remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? Yeah? Who loved a wee bit of Indiana Jones when they were younger, right? It's still a fascination. Where did this Ark ever go? But that was all fulfilled in Jesus, so we don't really need to worry about it, but it does make a good movie, right? But when we get to Samuel in the time of Israel, right, it's kind of like a biblical Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because the enemy, the Philistines, they recognize how powerful the Ark of the Covenant is. And so they go and they steal the Ark of the Covenant in battle. They capture it and they take it back to their neck of the woods. And um, it's an amazing story in and of itself. You can read it in 1 Samuel yourself. But it tells us that they bring the Ark of the Covenant in and they come in. And, but their god is called Dagon, who's a big statue. And they come in one day and Dagon's like, hit the deck. Nobody's been in. He's on the floor. And the next day they go in and he's hit the deck again, but this time his head's cut off on his arms. Right? This is what the presence of God does. And the Philistine says, we better get rid of this thing. And they actually send it back because it's powerful. The presence of God is powerful. And so we find ourselves then in Samuel at a point in the story right, where, I'm getting to where I'm going to, I promise, okay? Um, We get to the point in the story now with Samuel where it's called the monarchy of Israel. Israel have wanted a king. God has always been their king, but Israel like, no, we want a king. Give us a king. And so Samuel's heart's broke and God's heart's broke, but he gives him a king. He gives him Saul. He builds an altar, but he doesn't he doesn't really put himself on it. Right? He doesn't he's not wholehearted. And so God has to raise up another person, and this is called King David, and he has a heart after God. He, he prays prayers like this, Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. And he desires to establish, his desire is, as God gives him victory after victory, his desire is to establish Jerusalem as a place that honors God and where there's ongoing worship and prayer. He wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant, which has kind of been out there floating around somewhere with some different tribes or wherever. He wants to bring it right to the heart of Jerusalem. He knows that this old theme, 
like hundreds of years before that Moses carried with the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant needs to come right back to the center of our civilization. And that the city will only flourish when the presence of God is prioritized amongst the people. And in that regard, this is, this is where I'm trying to take us this morning. I think David had a desire, like we have a desire. Our vision is to help rewrite the story of this city. Lurgan, Portadown, the surrounding areas. And we know that the only way that it will flourish, because all the other ways haven't worked, really. We know that the only way it will flourish is when the presence of God is prioritized by the people of God. <clears throat> but like David, I'm wondering, does the Lord have to teach us something first? I'm wondering, because what we find in the story, which we're going to read now, is that David really wanted this, I think, but he just didn't know how to handle it. And he needed a period of time in the short term where he learned how to steward the presence of God. And, uh, and that's what I want us to read this morning. So we've finally got that bit of Bible. Okay, well, it's all been Bible, you know what I mean? But it's just been my paraphrasing. Here is what I want to read. Sorry, this is three or four slides, so stick with me and try and pick up the story. So this is the bit part of the story. Um, and then I just want to say a few things after it, and then we're going to have communion together. So we've got to this point where David has been, um, he's had victory after victory. He's become successful, but he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Or maybe even for the, one of the first times to really establish it there. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to this place in Judah to bring up from the Ark of God, to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name. The name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Right, just, just need to mark, note the fact that it says they put it on a new cart, okay? Uzzah and Ahio, Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all of Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of the God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? How, how, how can I cope with the presence of God? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went up to the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, every six steps now he's building an altar. He sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might when he and all of the Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael's daughter of Saul watched from a window. And when she saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. 
David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from this house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated even in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. A pretty, um, a pretty intense passage again. God's presence is a holy and powerful thing. We see how it brings blessing and favor to the house of Obed-Edom. We see how it strikes death and judgment into the hearts of those who try to accommodate it for their own purposes. Uzzah stretched out his hand and touched the ark. He says, the anger of the Lord was kindled and he was struck down dead. I mean, like he was only trying to stop the most holy thing in the world <laughs> from falling off a cart. And David sees this and he goes, how can the, how can the ark of the Lord come, how can the ark come to me? How can, the, how can I cope with the presence of the Lord? And so he's not willing to take the ark back just yet. And it seems to me, and this is the challenge I think the Lord's bringing us this morning, it seems to me that something needed to change in their approach and their posture towards the presence of the Lord. And as I reflect on this passage, I, I find myself asking myself the question this morning again, God, if, if you really answered all my prayers, would I be able to cope? How can the ark come to me? If I'm really longing for you to move in this town and in my life and in my family's life, if I'm really longing for an outpouring of your spirit to fall and your presence comes in power, Am I ready for that? Can I cope with that? Am I prepared to change? Am I prepared for the things that need to stop in my life stopping? The more you study the passage, the more you realize that the Ark of the Covenant should have been transported. The more, the more you understand how the Ark of the Covenant should be transported, the more you get clues into what really might have been happening. Because you see the bit I, I said to you about there that the Ark of the Covenant was carried on this new cart. It was never supposed to be carried on a cart. It was always supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. Now, you may think, well, that's not really much of a difference. But let me tell you, if you carry something on your shoulders, you have to posture yourself around it. You have to do something with your body to get it in such a way that you can carry what's on your shoulder. We make the moves in response to it. When it's on a cart, it's kind of a bit of a trophy to kind of back up our own sense often of reputation. And it seems to me that David took things for granted. I think his heart was genuine, but he had a little shadow mission in there. The presence of God became something for David that was convenient. He got so over-familiar with it that he took it for granted. But you see, the presence of God can't be contained. The presence of God can't be controlled. It can't be manipulated. It can't be packaged and sold, no matter how much they're trying to do that today on the TV. It could be argued that God wants to use the presence of God, I think, to legitimate his own power. I am the king of Israel now. It will be great for me to have the ark sitting beside me. And then I could attribute that it was God that's got me to where I am today. And that will kind of just 
puff up my sense of greatness. It was, I think, something that there was a slight little bit of David that this was validating his own success. The people had become more interested in their own reputation than they had about God's. And that won't do with God. God will not be objectified. And he won't be depersonalized. And he won't allow that to happen because, here's why. Because God has always been after a lived a lived encounter with humanity. He's never wanted anything else than wholeheartedness. Why? Because that's the kind of God that he is. That's the kind of relationship he wants. And that's what he was prepared to do. It's not like God's up there some cranky old grandfather in heaven who's just a bit annoyed and was having a bad day. It's, it's not that. It's God is love. But the Bible says his love is a consuming fire. And once you receive it into your heart, it captivates your heart like nothing else in the world can. It just, you know, we talk in the world about buzzing about certain things. If you, if you want to really be buzzing, <laughs> encounter the presence of the living God because that's what you were born to know. That's the part of your heart that God created that only he could fill. And we try to fill it with other things, but only he can fill it. But when it gets a hold of your life, it burns up the stuff that has become idols in our life. And once we get a hold of the depth of the intimacy that God desires with us, the love that he has for us, and it gets a hold of our life, it refines us, it changes us, it transforms us. We become more like His, him and his nature. And so God cannot let people settle for like a diluted form of his love. He can't go, well, here, just have a wee bit of it, you know, but don't really give me. He can't do that because he wouldn't be love if he let you settle for something less than love itself. That wouldn't be love. We, you know, if you're a parent today, you can kind of get that. There's things sometimes that you want to give a little bit of love to your child, but you know that the greater love is not to give them that because if you really love them, you won't let them do that. That's love because you could say the other's love, but it's actually neglect because we're not giving the greatest love that we can to see them become all that they're created to be. How much more with the Father of heaven and earth who loves the very world that he created? And, and so what we see is that David's men and himself had lost a little bit of their tenderheartedness towards the presence of God. They'd lost something of their pure devotion towards the presence of God. They had played with fire and they got burned because they allowed their own glory to be shared with God's. And isn't this often the case for us? We love to parade God when it suits us. You know, when they win the Oscar, I just like to thank God. And you're like, well, I'm not trying to say it's always disingenuous, but a lot of time you're like, it sounds good. It sounds good, doesn't it, to, to puff up your own sense of self-importance? But what does it really look like in a life of holiness? Are we still praising God when everything's going wrong? <clears throat> we can parade the presence of God, and then what happens? It's an impression of godliness, but it denies the power. The presence of God can become a, an accessory to our lives, just a good thing. Like almost, even sometimes we use it in church. Oh, our God's great. Our, our, our church is great. The presence of God's really there. And what we're really trying to say is, our church is better than yours. And we just brought the presence of God in as a wee statement to kind of 
magnify that. That's the kind of shadow in our, in our lives. We can only get away with that for so long before God has to remove himself or, or worse as we see in this story. And it's this point of the story um, that David realizes something is wrong, something's amiss. How, how can the ark come to me? How am I going to cope with this? If, if I want to see the answers to my prayer, the ark of the covenant at the center of my reign as king, how, how am I going to do that? What am I going to have to do? And so um, <laughs> David knows something needs realigned, something needs reordered in their hearts. Heart surgery is needed, and uh, there's a season of him needing to learn about the presence of God. And I just want to talk about this figure for a few minutes before I finish. And we're introduced at this point to a minor figure in the Bible, and he's got the funniest name. He's called Obed-Edom, okay? That's his name. And we saw him referenced in the scripture that we read. And David needs someone to look after the ark for a few months. Imagine that was you. Imagine that you were in the area, you just heard what had happened to the Ark of the Covenant, and the king kind of knocks your door and goes, um, you seem like a right fella or, or, or woman, lady. Would you, uh, would you be up for looking after this thing for a while? All right? Can you imagine what that would be like? Imagine like telling the kids, see that room with the big box in it and the two angels on the top. Don't touch it! Can you, can you imagine what it might have been like let me, let me read this from Pete Gregg's book, Dirty Glory, just a paragraph. I, I thought he said it better than I could. I assume that Obed-Edom had a large house and that he had children. Imagine how worried he must have been when he commanded them not under any circumstances to touch the big box with the angel wings in the spare room. Obed-Edom had no guarantee at all that, the housing, that housing the symbol of God's presence was not going to cost him his life or the, least, uh, or the life of at least one of his children. Caught somewhere between wonder and fear, he must have thanked God for the unspeakable honor of his presence with one breath and begged God to spare his life with the other. More than a thousand years before the cross of Christ, Obed-Edom was forced to gamble his life on grace. The glory of God's presence must have been heavy throughout Obed-Edom's home for three months in which he housed the ark. I imagine worship and prayer erupting continually, revelation flowing freely, his marriage happier and more fulfilled than it ever been, the children laughing, thriving and healthy, neighbors coming around just to enjoy the atmosphere of peace and joy, arguments getting resolved quickly, and consciences, consciences sensitized to holiness. Odom Edom actually produced a kind of envy in King David. It's hard to make a king envious. Like, he's got everything. But he realizes that Obed Edom's got something here that I need. And so he goes back to Obed Edom's house. And now he starts the journey back to Jerusalem. And this time he's learned his lesson. This time, every six steps he built an altar. Every six steps. It's like a full-on carnival. It's like they're dancing and they're rejoicing and they're in, complete un they're in complete abandonment to the point where David is pretty much dancing in his underpants. Imagine that some week. Don't worry. I'm not planning it anytime soon, right? But he's, he's just uninhibited and abandoned in his worship that he's down to his underwear, <laughs> whatever that is, linen ephod, praising and rejoicing <laughs> and giving, giving thanks to God. And when... The presence of God comes to Jerusalem 
I'm not going to take time to go into it, but basically what happens is we're told, in this, if you read it, the start of chapter 7, that God gave David rest from all his enemies. And we're told that what happened then was for 40 years, night and day, 40 years, David organized the Levites and they worshipped and praised God night and day. It was 24-7 prayer and worship continually. And this led to the revival of Israel. This was the glory days of Israel. This is what the Jews still talk about today, Right? There was a revival in the city, but the revival came, and this is what I want you to really land this morning. This is what I want to get, and I want us to get as a church. The revival was preceded by three months in obscurity with just an ordinary faithful man stewarding the presence of God well. And so my hunch is I don't know how long our short-term location is going to be. My hunch is, is in our desire to see the story of this city rewritten, is God calling us to proceed a move of the Spirit in this city and in this nation in the short term by learning how to steward and host the presence of God. If God is really to answer our prayers, are we ready for it? And so I want to encourage you this week to pray and to fast. Not just for your own life, please do that, but also for us as a body. And as we come together on Friday night, to hear the word of the Lord. And to be a people that don't just set the, set the ark on a cart and every now and again say, we treat the presence of God as some kind of thing that becomes an accessory to our lives, but that we posture our whole lives around it. That we carry it not we just make it convenient for us. You know the amazing thing about this story too is, if you read on, it's pretty obscure, but if you read on, when David gets this 40 years going, he starts to order all the, all the Levites, all the worship leaders, and all the prayer people. He gets them all around in order to maintain this worship. And <clears throat> it says this, after David had constructed buildings for himself, he prepared the place for the ark of God and pitched the tent for it. Then God said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God because the Lord chose him to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. David assembled all of Israel and Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to the place he prepared for it. And he called together the descendants of Aaron and the Levites. Right? So he, he orders them all. This is the Chronicles account. Now watch this. So the Levites appointed all these people. Your man, the son of Joel, and from his relatives, Asaph, and on and on it goes. But who's there? Obed-Edom. And then it tells us of all the musicians that are there. Who's there? Obed-Edom. Now, we can't be completely sure that it's the same person, but I think it was. So what did he do? Probably a prosperous businessman. Done pretty well for himself. I don't know. Seems like there have been somebody of upstanding for David to have wanted him to like look after the ark. What does he do? It looks like he leaves it all and he follows the presence of God. Because here's the thing, once you get a taste of it, once you get a taste of it, everything else like lukewarm water in your mouth, once you get a taste of the presence of God, once you have an encounter of his presence, you don't want to settle for anything less. And so I feel like the Lord is calling us as a people to steward his presence like we've never stewarded it before in our own lives personally and for um, 
us as a body. And for some of us, particularly some of us have been on the road for a while in our Christian faith, that's, that's going to need a little bit of prayer. And I know that's what it's meant for me because you just get over familiar. And familiarity breeds a kind of contempt, doesn't it? And so I feel like as we come to the table the Lord this morning, the Lord wants to tenderize our hearts. And you know what it might mean? It might mean you doing some irrational things. Like that go against your sensibilities. Here's Pete Gregg to finish. Learning to dwell in the love of the Father is offensive to the strategic part of our brains. A violation of the ego, a sort of dying. It can seem irresponsible, like David dancing in his underpants when he should have been thinking of his reputation as a national leader. It can appear profligate and super spiritual, like the psalmist yearning, fainting, or even crying out simply to be in God's dwelling place. It can seem naive and scandalous, like, sorry, that should be Mary of Bethany, splashing bottles of Chanel on Jesus' feet when the money could have been used to feed the hungry. It can be efficient, like Jesus staying up all night in prayer when he really needed to be sharp the next day. It can appear selfish, like Mary abandoning her sister peeling potatoes in the kitchen so that she could recline at the feet of Jesus. It's probably going to mean something different. It's probably going to mean something different. It's probably going to mean to let Latin your heart out before the Lord. And so as we come to remember Jesus this morning, I want you to think about how you want to posture your heart this year before Jesus. And there's no better way to do this than around breaking of bread and the cup that we drink of because it reminds us of the love of God the lengths and the depths that he would go to to know us in the way that he knows us. And um, the worship team are going to come and uh, lead us in a song. But just in these moments of stillness, before we just come and partake of the table, I want you just, why don't we just close our eyes and uh, just reflect on maybe how the Lord is speaking to you this year. As we remember the Lord, you're more than welcome, if you know Jesus, to come and partake with us. Um, it's an open table in that regard. If you, uh, uh, The Bible tells us to examine ourselves and then come to the table. We're not going to pass it out. We're just going to come to the front. Um, and so if you would like to come and take of communion because you want to remember Jesus this morning um, and what he's done for you, then you're more than welcome to do that. If you don't um, know Jesus, don't feel any obligation to come forward um, at all. But you can for the first time today by simply just saying, Lord Jesus, I just want you to come into my life. I want to taste something of the presence that has been talked about this morning. And uh, you can pray that prayer this morning and come to the table. The grace of God is here for you. But let's be a people this year who posture ourselves in such a way that when we ask ourselves the question, you know, we, when we ask ourselves the question, how can the ark come to me? If any of us were to sit and kind of add up all the things that are wrong about us, none of us could come. You know, but the beautiful thing is the Bible says, you know, examine yourself and then come because we all can come because of the grace of Jesus. He has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so we come to the table aware of the grace of God this morning. All right. Um, why don't we stand our feet? Can we do that? And uh, just as we stand and the guys lead us in this song, just feel free. To, there's um, uh, two tables here at the front and there's at least one at the back. Um, and so if you want to just, um, during the song, go and take of uh, some of the bread and uh, bring
bring uh, one of the little cups back to your um, chair and just remember Jesus and uh, personally reflect on that. That would be great this morning. Okay, let's let's do that. And then I'll come back up and close.